Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series, The Impact of the Bible, today with a message titled, The Need to Be Forgiven and the Need to Forgive. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have a memory of a painful conversation with a Jewish man in Israel. Through a series of events, he told me his story. He was the son of Holocaust survivors. The sufferings of his people had left a mark on him. And as regards to the Nazis and even the German people as a whole, he confessed to me that now, even as an older man, he's still filled with rage, a rage that sometimes consumed him. He said, I can never forgive. I listened. I felt it was inappropriate to say anything. One had to walk in his shoes to be able to comprehend how deep is the wound that had found its way into his soul. What can be said of so heinous a crime? But I also know of Germans who have confessed to me that Germany can never be forgiven, and here it is. One man can't forgive, and another man can't be forgiven. And I don't want to oversimplify the profound nature of this matter, but it appears to me that this is a picture of the entire human race crime, sins, and the need to be forgiven, while not being sure that such a matter is possible at all. You know, I, for one week, wanted to talk about the importance of the Bible. And there may be those who listen who will say, you know, I'm just not interested in the Bible. But my point has been that regardless of your religion or lack of religion, you need the Bible more than you know. Nations neglect the Bible to their peril, and individuals as well. I wanted to make the case that the message of the Bible is desperately needed, and today as I end this very brief series on the importance of the Bible in our world, I thought it would end with a matter of forgiveness. And forgiveness is no small matter. You know, in today's world, where we have known something called cancel culture, forgiveness is all but forgotten. You know, if you made a racist or a homophobic or a politically incorrect statement, and if that's the case, and it's been posted on the internet in some form, There are a great many people who want you fired and set aside for the rest of your life. There's no pathway back from what some believe are those serious sins. Forgiveness is not offered. Reconciliation is impossible. Damnation is all that's offered. Look, I'm not condemning those who are legitimately wounded by now highlighting that, you know, they can't forgive. But here I must press the point. It's not that some need forgiveness. It's that we all need forgiveness. And we need to admit that forgiveness, in order to be real, needs to overcome a great deal. The obstacles to genuine forgiveness leading to reconciliation are, at the very least, formidable. And so where do we start? So it would seem to me that the logical place to start when discussing forgiveness is to begin with an unflinching look of what crimes have been done that put one in the place of being called guilty. And so let's begin by noticing something about crimes and the culpability for crimes. It's a rare thing for someone to confess their sins. Let's begin with the first murder. The Bible records that act for us. Cain was growing increasingly anger and bitter with his brother Abel. And then when God accepts his brother's offering, but rejects his offering, well, Cain is in a fit of rage and he kills his brother. And then God comes to Cain. Where's your brother, he says. And Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for my brother? If my brother suffers, what's that to me? See how foolish it is to try to deceive the all-knowing God. And God responds, look, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now says God, you're cursed. 
And in the end, Cain will become a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain responds and says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Indeed, it was. And in the end, God does provide bodily protection for Cain, but his guilt remained with him until he died and then stood before the judgment of God. Later on in the Bible, Genesis 9, 5 to 6, we hear God's declaration regarding murder. The passage says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And that's it. Capital punishment for murder. Justice must be done. And that theme of law and justice finds its way deeply into the biblical narrative. We move on in the biblical narrative and come to a scene of the nation of some two million people standing at the base of Mount Sinai. The people are all told to ready themselves. They're going to meet with God. And then comes that fateful day in which God makes his presence known at the top of the mountain. A thick cloud envelops the mountain. There's thunders and lightning. Now it's a smoke that envelops the mountain and says the Bible, the mountain trembled greatly. And then there was a sound of a trumpet that continued to get louder and louder. And in the midst of all of that, God, the great one and holy God, descends onto the mountain and delivers his holy laws. And the scene surely gives the impression that the laws of God are not up for discussion or debate. God is speaking and he declares laws. And there are 10 of them. One, you shall have no other gods before me, no other gods permitted. Number two, you shall not make a carved image. Nothing shall be made to represent God. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, nor shall you use his name in a way other than to treat it with reverence. Number four, you shall remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Number five, you shall honor your father and mother. Do not despise your parents. God made you into a family. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. No slander permitted, nor lies. And finally, number 10, you shall not covet. God had spoken. These are the things the creator set down as his laws. We need to stop here and understand the function of law. The law doesn't change behavior, but it does identify behavior. It labels the person who breaks the law as a law breaker. It's not a slip up, it's breaking law. And what's also fascinating is that Jesus himself taught on the 10 commandments and he interprets the law, not just in observable actions, but also in heart attitudes. You've heard it said, says Jesus, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you're angry with your brother, nurturing hatred in your heart, you're already murdering in your heart. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but if your heart is filled with lust, adultery is already deeply rooted in your heart. In short, the law of God identifies where we sin, but it does more. It also identifies attitudes that reside in our hearts, where we safely hide these attitudes from others, but not from God. And that's what the Bible speaks about when it says in Romans 3 verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I need to stop here and acknowledge that the biblical teaching on the universal sinfulness of all humanity is hotly contested in modern and contemporary Western culture. Indeed, I remember an older preacher who used to say, you don't have to tell people they're sinful, they already know that. But do they? 
You see, most modern-day North Americans think they slip up on occasion, but that they're basically good and not sinful. A great many people have argued that we need to lose a sin consciousness and replace it with the idea that we're innately good and sometimes slip up. And fascinatingly enough, the early chapters of the book of Romans seem to be aware of that idea. There Paul speaks to Jews and Gentiles as two separate groups of people. Jews have the law of God, who should be aware in detail their transgressions against God. He says it's no good for you to be against adultery if you're committing adultery, because then you prove yourself to be a lawbreaker. And by the way, I might inject a little realism into this discussion. You know, the sheer number of pastors who have committed adultery is, in my estimation, staggering. It's made a mockery of the gospel to the watching world. Now, I have one report before me of a large megachurch with extension campuses in numerous countries and whose music industry became a global phenomenon, and yet it is now accurately reported in just one of its large extension campuses, multiple incidences of consensual and non-consensual sexual interaction between church leaders and congregants, staff, volunteers, between them and also non-church goers. But that's just one extension campus. In the mother church, the leader of the entire church movement is also under suspicion. He just resigned his post under a cloud of scandals. Not only did the senior pastor hide his own father's sexual misconduct, but now He's been made to explain why he was drunk and spent time in a motel room with a female staff member from his church. And in all that, I can hear Paul's words in Romans 2, verse 22. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And then two verses later, verse 24, Paul says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Back to the Bible Canada is approaching its fiscal year end, making June a financially critical month for the ministry. Over these past few years, Back to the Bible Canada has been committed to ensuring that in unpredictable times, you can rely on our Bible teaching and engagement resources to provide the comfort and guidance of God's Word. This year, to ensure we reach our goal, a few generous ministry friends who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to help us reach our year-end target of $409,000 by pledging to match every dollar you donate up to $100,000. This will double the impact of your gift. There is no better time to consider supporting this ministry than right now. We'd be so grateful for any gift you might choose to give. So for more information or to donate, call us at one 800 663 2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The Bible is quite clear. It will not exonerate the guilty. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. See, God will not tolerate that the guilty should get off scot-free. And that includes absolutely those who claim they're religious as well as those who claim they're Christian and church leaders. And that's especially emphasized in 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
But what if there are those who have not heard the laws of God? And I've made the point that sin has nothing to do with our feelings. Sin is breaking divine law. The Bible makes the case that the creator is a moral creator. He demands moral conduct of all that he's made in his image. And furthermore, the creator has reserved a day of judgment in which he will judge the actions of all his image bearers. But again, what of those who are not aware of the law of God? How is it possible to hold people accountable for something of which they are unaware? And the book of Romans in the first three chapters answers that question. First of all, says Romans, all men, all men and women are without excuse. For that which might be known about God is already plain to them in nature. God's design in nature, which speaks of his eternal power and divine nature, is plain to every human being. And furthermore, we become aware that we owe to our creator an eternal debt of gratitude. We're required to acknowledge our creator in everything. And failure to do so results in hearts that are filled with impurity, leading to a host of sins, both against God, against our own bodies, and against our fellow human being. We are, says Romans, without excuse. And furthermore, not only has God revealed himself in nature, he's also revealed himself in the human conscience. Sometimes our conscience affirms our actions. Other times it condemns us. And of course, if we pay no attention to conscience, eventually we cauterize it and we become unresponsive to it. But the point of Romans 1 to 3 is to pry apart the inner mechanisms of the entire human race, whether it be Jews who are given the law or Gentiles who did not have the law, but who have a consciousness of sin. Every human being has been found wanting and guilty before God. Read through Romans 1 to 3, and for that matter, read through a great part of the Bible. And hear the Bible not canceling a few, but canceling everyone. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And having said that, should not give the impression that everyone's sins are as bad as the next, because James 3 verse 1 speaks of those who will be judged with greater severity. And so there we are, guilty sinners before a holy God. That's the Bible's testimony. Don't think when you hear of wars in which world leaders and their soldiers commit unspeakable atrocities that they will at any point not have to pay the price for the grand total of every misdeed. They will answer for each individual crime, and as their crimes multiply, so does their guilt, and so is the horror of the eternal judgment they must undergo before God. They will be treated precisely as each individual crime deserves. No eternal sentence of guilt is a blunt instrument. Rather, it's a scalpel where, says the Bible, God examines each act with a thoroughgoingness that's astonishing. People should never say, well, you know, I'm going to hell already. No, no. With each sin, each person makes the penalty they pay ever worse, ever more terrifying. That's what the Bible teaches. And again, It does no good to point the finger at others and refuse to come to terms with our own sins against God and our sins against others. God will be proved just when he judges every human being with his infinite insight. And then what's to be done about that? Again, I began by speaking about our contemporary culture where people are easily canceled. And furthermore, once they're canceled, they can never be redeemed. They're to be thrown out and made a byword. Their presence in polite society is no longer welcomed. 
And in such a world, there will be no grace, no second chances. In place of love, only condemnation and the outpouring of wrath. Well, someone might say, but isn't that what you've just described in defining the Bible's teaching about the sin of each human being? No, 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 I have not. For one, in cancel culture, there's always those who claim they have no sin. And in the Bible, even while some sins are greater than others, in the end, all people are required to admit that they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the great leveler. Those who condemn are those who have forgotten their own sin. Oh, the hypocrisy of pointing fingers at others when we willfully turn a blind eye to our own transgressions. For if we point out the sins of another, we must do so with a trembling voice and with the assurance that if all are condemned for their sins, then none of us, including ourselves, will stand. The realization of universal guilt before God takes away all reason for pride, all one-upmanship, all arrogance, all conceit. The heart sinks when it sees the sins in others because we know those sins are also found in us. And so fundamental to the Bible teaching is universal sinfulness. Again, I'm not saying that all sins are as bad as others. I mean, the murderer must stand trial. The adulterer must face the consequences of his or her action. The thief must be called upon to make restoration. But ultimately, the judgment of each crime reminds us our own day of judgment is coming. Now, when we're speaking of the need to be forgiven, for our sins to be removed from us, Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But how is forgiveness found? Where's the mercy seat? Where's the place where guilty sinners might be cleansed and made whole? That's the central issue of the Bible, and that's why the Bible must be heard. And I know, I know, there are those souls that will still say, yeah, but all the world's religions say the same thing. But those kind of statements are only made by those who don't know the religions of the world at all. Here's the surprise. The major world's religions are not all saying the same things. Indeed, they're not even asking the same questions. They're addressing different issues. And here's the truth. Only the Bible addresses the issue of where forgiveness can be found. See, the Bible's testimony begins as follows. The First Testament, in its discussion of the law, sets out a pattern of worship. Animals must be sacrificed on an altar as a reminder of sins. Sin demands sacrifice. Sin demands the shedding of blood. But we also find out that the blood of sacrificed animals can't take away sins. They're only a reminder that the sin problem remains and that sin can't be taken lightly. It demands the shedding of blood. And then in the fullness of time, the Bible introduces us to Jesus, the perfect man, the only man in all human history who never sinned, not once. In each temptation he faced, he yielded himself to God. And the book of Hebrews describes him offering up his prayers with loud cries and tears, and he was heard. God heard every one of his prayers. And then the perfect man was crucified. And here we come back to the book of Romans. Romans 3.25 says that God the Father put forth his Son as a propitiation, or in our language, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Just like the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament, Jesus, as it were, on the cross, was laid upon the altar of sacrifice. He became our sin substitute. 1 John 2 verse 2 says that on him were laid the sins of the whole world. Romans goes on to say that all have sinned, but that God presented his perfect son 
to pay the penalty for our sins. But then Romans goes on to say, this is received by faith. That is, if we but confess our sins to God and confess our need for a Savior, if we will but bow our heads in shame and in submission to God and accept his free offer to forgive our sins through the sacrifice of his one and only Son, then the sacrifice of Jesus is considered just payment for our sins. The wrath of God against our sin was satisfied in the death of Jesus. So forgiveness is found. That forgiveness is not cheap. It's not sloppy, sentimental thinking. Forgiveness comes at a great cost. It costs the death of the very Son of God. And of course, should we accept the gift that the Father offers by faith? Jesus himself then takes us captive and makes us into his servants. Our lives are then hid in Christ, and he takes ownership of our lives and commands our future. And that's the Bible's message. The way has been found to forgive without sacrificing justice or the horrible cost of sin. And this is good news. In a world where so many sins are committed and where forgiveness is so desperately needed, the Bible offers a way for forgiveness followed by reconciliation with God. You know, in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between us and God has been broken down. The Bible declares a message that no other book proclaims. There is in the Bible the hope of forgiveness, and what's gone away is fear of the judgment. Thanks, John, for a great series. Let me ask you a bit more of a general question. How does the, the, the biblical illiteracy that we experience today have an impact upon our church? Yeah, I think um, I, I'm, I'm going to say this carefully. But yes, you can uh, hold to Roman Catholic theology and be basically biblically illiterate. That is to say, you believe that the church uh, is the dispenser of grace. But if you hold to the evangelical gospel, the biblical gospel, uh, that is uh, that faith comes only by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, you cannot nurture an evangelical church that is ignorant of scripture. Either we educate our laity to be biblically literate, or if we fail to do that, it is the end of the local church. So uh, let's do what God has called us to do. Let's be scripture learners and scripture teachers. It's essential. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week for more of Back to the Bible Canada and Bible teaching you can trust. In Deuteronomy eleven nineteen, we find instruction on our commitment to the teaching of the Bible. We are to teach His Word to our children, wherever we are at any time of day. And that's the significance of our 1119 Fellowship monthly partner program. So if you choose to join this monthly program, you're partnering with us to ensure that Bible teaching is being taught faithfully and abundantly. One monthly partner said, if your heart is to see Christians grow in maturity in their walk with the Lord and to see lives transformed and turned towards Jesus, I would encourage you to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada through their 1119 Fellowship Program. To join or for more information, or to offer a single gift towards our dollar-for-dollar dollar fiscal year-end match campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.